My name is Alex Noel. I'm a member of the church board, and you're stuck with me this morning. Now, I am a teacher by trade, and the reason I'm telling you that is because if this feels like you're in school, I'm sorry, that's, that's who I am at this point. <laughs> that's just kind of how things are. Uh, but what that also means is that I am not used to speaking to students and then not speaking back. So if you're feeling a little mouthy this morning, it doesn't bother me at all. This is your opportunity to be mouthy in church. Now, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt horrendously underprepared to do something? <laughs> It's not about the sermon, I promise. It's not about the sermon. Uh, horrendously underprepared to do something. And the reason I ask is because I think there's a couple of Bible stories that maybe at least up until recently I've been reading the wrong way, or perhaps maybe a, a boring way. So I want to sort of explore this idea of what it means to be underprepared. And if maybe rather than us thinking of these situations as I'm not ready to do it, maybe given a little credit where credit's due and perhaps you are prepared and just haven't really thought about how. I'll give you an example. I, if you look at my grades and I, I showed my former high school teachers what I do now, being a high school teacher, and they kind of chuckled because they didn't expect me to end up in a classroom. Now, let me paint this picture for you. My highest grade by far, a whopping 98% was banned because I was an incredible tuba player. I'm also the only one, but it's still true. Uh, so at the top was 98 with band, and then right underneath that was biology, which is what I teach now with a whopping 67%. <laughs> the rest of them, I passed, and that's all we'll say. So when I look at the journey of going from like barely passing high school, I like to I won an award in high school, essentially called the Community Leadership Award, which we talked about is like the nice guy award. Like he's not gonna be up there for anything academic, but he's a really good kid. So can we give him something? So they gave me a little watch and it doesn't fit, uh, but I still have it. <laughs> it's, it's true because when I look at my high school career to now, ending high school that way really made me feel like I wasn't really prepped for whatever being a, an adult kind of looked like. And I want to keep that in the back of your head as we go through here, because I think there's potentially some other people, at least in the Bible, that felt the same way. Now, this seems like a silly question, but hands up if you're familiar with Moses. Now, believe it or not, I'm not actually talking about Moses being underqualified. We're talking about his successor. Now let's paint a picture here. Moses at this point had had a collection of accolades. He had led the Israelites out of Egypt, all the plagues that happened, he split the Red Sea, and then he, he went to Mount Sinai and he got the 10 commandments, just check mark, check mark, check mark. This guy knows what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, he's like, you know what, I'm, I'm getting a little bit old. It says in the Bible that Moses was about 120 years old when he started having these conversations about what does it look like for somebody to take over for me? And so Moses picked a successor. I, moreover, God picked a successor named Joshua. Now, the Israelites would have known who Joshua was. It wasn't just some random guy. It's not like he's like, okay, God, I'm going to turn around and spin, and you tell me to stop, and then that person leads the Israelites now. No, Joshua had already been doing things leading up to this point. So when God selected Joshua as the leader, everyone was like, okay, well, we kind of know of him. He's here, which also counts for being a leader. 
But Joshua, I would imagine, felt a lot of trepidation trying to figure out what it means to be the successor for somebody like Moses. How do you follow in the footsteps of somebody as, I don't know, regal, as someone like Moses? So starting from Deuteronomy 31, verse 7, it says that, Then Moses called for Joshua, and as all of Israel watched, which is important, he said to him, Be strong and courageous, for you will lead these people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors he would give them. You are the one who will divide it among them as their grants of land. Now, I think my favorite part about this, especially now, thinking about this whole concept of succession, is that Moses decided to make this declaration in front of everybody. He could have said this just to Josh, like, hey, Josh, come here, come here. Be strong and courageous. No, no, that's a pep talk. Moses made a declaration, which I think is really important here, because Joshua is taking over for a job that he might not have felt qualified for. Verse eight continues, it says, do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither fail you or abandon you. Moses makes a promise on behalf of God that God will go ahead. It's as if Moses is saying, don't forget, yeah, there's a lot of things that I did, but I didn't do. God did through me. And so all the things that people accredit to Moses are really credits that should go to God. And so Moses is saying to the Israelites, listen, yeah, you know what, I'm getting old, I need to take a break, but God hasn't changed. There's just a new guy doing his work in front of you for him. That hasn't changed at all. So when we look at this idea that God went ahead to prepare the way, that's really the connection I'm trying to make here for you with this idea of being horrendously underprepared. So with that idea, we're gonna jump ahead in the Bible a little bit to a young man named David. Now, for those who don't know, in school I teach primarily biology. And so a lot of the things that we talk about in school are about uh, the human body. And I've got a few students in particular who've got this real keen interest in history. And so one of the things that came up is we've been talking about historical figures and trying to compare them to the things that we've learned in class. And the story of David and Goliath came up. Now, I've always viewed the story of David and Goliath uh, as a, what I would call a last minute miracle. David shows up and he strolls up to Goliath all bold and Saul's like, do you have a plan? I know it doesn't say this in the Bible. In my head, Saul says, David, do you have a plan? He says, nope, I don't need a plan. And then he waltzes up to Goliath and then, you know, we'll read those verses later. What happens, happens. So that's how I viewed it for my entire life. And then recently, uh, based on these conversations with the students and some of my other colleagues, I've been beginning to rethink it. And as a side note, I thought that this rethink was unique to me. Uh, it's not. <laughs> you've, you've probably heard this before. Uh, turns out people have been researching this idea for about 30 to 40 years. But we're still going to talk about it because uh, I think it's cool. Now, I want you to consider the story of David and Goliath. What is the moment where the miracle occurs? At what point in that story do we have the intervention of God? Because for me, up until recently, I thought it was oh, David strolls up. Then, miracle. That's the moment that it happened. But I'm reconsidering that maybe it didn't happen then, maybe it didn't happen when he walked into the, the camp with Saul, listening to Goliath taunting the Israelites. I think it might have happened 20 to 30 years before then. 
and agree or disagree, which is totally fine. I want you to consider that this morning. Now, here's why the biology class led to this. In school, we talk about hormones. One such hormone is called human growth hormone. Human growth hormone is in charge of uh, making you big, long story short. Uh, big muscles, big bones, that kind of stuff. Now, if somebody has too much human growth hormone, we call that a disease called acromegaly or gigantism. And so one of the students was asking, what are some famous people that you know of who have had gigantism? Can anyone think of someone? Andre the Giant, yeah. So we spent a long time talking about Andre the Giant. Uh, don't ask me how it's relevant to biology. We had a good time, but we, we did a deep dive of this man and his life, and we came across a lot of interesting things like uh, people were inflating his height for the sake of his wrestling career. So people were saying that some, some people said Andre the Giant got up to seven, uh, seven feet, 11 inches. Some people were saying, no, he was close to like six feet, nine inches. We saw all sorts of quotes for his weight as well. People saying that he weighed maybe 350 pounds, some as high as 520 pounds, but either way, everyone agreed, he's a big guy. So after we started talking about Andre the Giant for a bit, one of the students came up to me afterward and they're like, Mr. Noel, do you know about Goliath? It's like, oh, I do. <laughs> You've come to the right place. Do you have any thoughts about that? And he's like, have you ever considered that Goliath might have had acromegaly? I was like, no, <laughs> no, I had never considered that. I had heard inklings of questions about who Goliath was or what he was. And so one of the things that comes up a lot in theological literature, which keep in mind, I'm not a theology uh, major, that wasn't my area of expertise, but I'm, I'm a good reader. So one of the things that came up was the concept of him being something called a Nephilim, or Nephilim, uh, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, tell me after. But either way, the idea that Goliath might be some combination of human and something else not quite white human leading to him being so tall, a race of people mentioned earlier on in the Bible, and that Goliath was potentially one of those people. And so I, in the past, was like, oh, I mean, good enough for me, uh, move on with my life. But this concept of acromegaly, I think, is really, really interesting. Now, let's describe Goliath a bit. We're reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting from verse 1. It said, The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soka and Judah and Azekah and Ephesdamon. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite sides of the hill with a valley in between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion of Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin over his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was heavy and thick as the wearer's beam. It was tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds, and his armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying the shield. And so just imagine this nine foot tall man. And for some perspective, I'm six feet tall. I don't look up at very many people. A couple people, uh, but not very many. So imagining not just like a little tip, but like there's, <laughs> he's big. This is a big, big man. And, but the, the question that student brought to my attention, the reason it stuck with me so much is because acromegaly or gigantism has a couple of symptoms, which includes very, very large hands and large feet, large muscles, which doesn't necessarily mean stronger muscles, excessive height and excessive weight. 
Now, if we look at the general size of Andre the Giant, uh, depending on uh, how big and how heavy you feel like he was, and then we start looking at the Bible's description of Goliath. So, Goliath, being around nine feet tall, fits right into that range size-wise for what, at least nowadays, we expect for somebody with acromegaly, which is anywhere between six, nine, and nine feet, of course, after the hormone confirmation. So by modern standards, he would absolutely fit. Goliath was large, uh, described albeit briefly in history, uh, but he's there. And so when we look at the potential for Goliath to have had this disease, we see that the symptoms of that, there are a couple other problems that arise. Limited joint mobility is one of those main symptoms. So someone being strong and someone being large, but because they are so large, their body has trouble actually moving their joints. Among other things, there are vision problems. So people with acromegaly are also more likely to have trouble seeing. Uh, some of the literature describes them as profoundly nearsighted. So it'd be really, really hard for them to see far away. And so, again, looking at this possibility, we move on a little bit ahead this time to verse eight. So verse eight says, Goliath stood and shouted taunts across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he asked. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then you'll win. But if I kill him, then we will win. I defy the armies of Israel today to fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. I feel like if you're nine feet tall, it's not hard to be intimidating, honestly. Now, I never thought about why Goliath being so tall and purportedly strong would ever request a one-on-one -on -one fight. And I want you to think about that for a second. If you're the biggest person in a room and everyone is afraid of you, and you're like, how do I subjugate these people with violence? And the first thought is, I don't know, just give me one guy. That seems a bit odd to me with this other stuff in mind. One-on-one, -on -one, however, does make sense if he knows that he's vulnerable. If he's like, I can't move very quickly, I'd want to avoid moving my arms if I can. From what I could find, there's not a whole lot of info about Goliath before this moment. No uh, big military accolades, not to say that there are none, just that I couldn't find them, which you saw my grades in high school. So when we look at this idea that he's got a shield bearer, so he's got uh, 125 to 130 pounds of armor and spears and things like that, and somebody else carrying his shield. Was it that he just wanted somebody to be like extra intimidating, or was it that he couldn't carry the shield? And if he, he lacked the ability to do so, then this becomes a different story. So regardless, Goliath taunts the Israelites for 40 days. Is there any uh, siblings in the room? <laughs> just, how, how long does it take for your sibling to taunt you before it just makes you crazy? So I'm just imagining that, but a, a thousand times worse. So 40 days of taunting, and then we again jump ahead a little bit to David, starting at verse 32. Or let me, let me preface this really quickly. So uh, David's father, Jesse, is talking to David saying, hey, your brothers are on the battlefield. Take some supplies to them. You go. And then we jump to verse 32. It says, don't worry about this Philistine. When Dave gets there, David told Saul, I'll go fight him. Which David, depending on who you ask, anywhere between 15 and 19 years old, 
seems a little arrogant that he should see this nine foot tall man taunting the Israelites and say, no one wants you? Okay, fine, I'll do it. He says, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb. If an animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. He has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who has rescued me from the claws of a lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So David the shepherd said to himself, I got this, which again, a while ago, I thought was ridiculous. <laughs> Why would a shepherd say, with that confidence, I've got this, and in my head, it was purely because he's like, I don't know what's gonna happen, but a miracle is gonna arrive. But I think he knew exactly what was gonna happen. Because shepherds don't just stand around with a stick and make a circle around sheep like I used to imagine. They have to protect the sheep from the animals, from lions and from bears and other things like that. Shepherds had to be at least relatively competent with weapons, like clubs, or like we hear later on, David selected a slingshot. Now, if we think about it that way, David is walking into a situation with the skills to make something happen, and he knows that. I don't know if the soldiers know that. I don't know if they spent a lot of time with shepherds, but David's retort to Saul when he said, that's ridiculous, don't do that, was like, no, 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 I've done this before. Lion, check. Bear, check. Goliath, give me a sec, but hold my pen. So, <laughs> as a shepherd, David would have had the experience in defending his flock, specifically at long range, which is important here if we think about the possibility of Goliath having acromegaly and being nearsighted profoundly nearsighted. And so, Goliath mentions in the Bible that, hey, uh, whoever's coming up, this tiny person, why are you coming up to me with a stick? You got this little thing here, that's not enough to handle me. He's trying to go David closer. Come closer so I can see you and thus hit you. But David's like, no, 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 that's not how shepherds do things. David has a plan because it's what he's done before. So if David runs up close, he's done for. And any other soldier in the Israelite army probably was thinking that. We can imagine that because when David tells Saul that he's going out there, what does Saul say? Uh, don't go, but if you are gonna go, have some armor, have this weapon, get up in there close, have a sword. And it's not like you can just run up and throw the sword and hope for the best, that's ridiculous. Saul was intending for David to get up close. And David said, no, 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 I don't know how to get up close, but I know how to do what I do, so let me do it. So when we compare Goliath's potential health problems to David's experience as a shepherd, what becomes apparent is that Goliath never stood a chance. David was already ready. And so if we look at this idea that David has chosen to volunteer, it is not simply that David had confidence he had no right to have, or that he's like, I don't know what's gonna happen, but a miracle is gonna happen at some point, and so we'll be fine. It is that David was literally perfect for the job. David volunteers because he hears the taunts, and he knows that God has gone ahead. He's ready. 
Saul protests his volunteering, offers the weapons and armor like we said, but David is already ready. He doesn't need it. God went ahead for David and he simply said yes. And so if we think about it from that perspective, what we potentially hear is that the miracle did not happen in the moment that David stepped onto the battlefield. The miracle happened the moment Goliath was born. Goliath could never have won against David, not a David who was confident in the skills that he had already built as a shepherd. So what that means is that David's obedience to his calling in the world up to that point is what made it so that the path that God had laid out was a path that he could walk safely. And even though everyone, mentors, and of course Goliath was saying that, "Eh, it's a little crazy that you're planning to fight this man with a sling, David said, no, 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 I'm already ready. And so the concept that everything you've done, even being as quote unquote lowly as a shepherd, the concept of that prepping him reminded me a lot of me in high school, which I know it sounds weird. I'm not trying to like push myself up by comparing myself to David here, uh, but I want you to think about this for a second. With all those awful grades in school, you'd think I'd make a terrible teacher. Uh, turns out it's the opposite. Partially because a lot of the students that I talk to are like, ah, you wouldn't understand. I was like, no, 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 I didn't understand. Uh, but I had to take the time to learn it, and I want to teach you some shortcuts that I knew. I teach at a school for kids with learning disabilities, and it turns out those shortcuts are real handy for them. And so when they ask, how did you figure this out? I was like, well, uh, I came real close to failing quite frequently. I failed a couple of classes, uh, chemistry and physics in particular. <laughs> And so when I started teaching chemistry and physics, they're like, this is a bit unorthodox. I was like, don't worry, we'll get there. Trust me, trust me. And then when we get there, they're like, oh, interesting. How did you figure out to do that? I'm like, well, if some people, if it comes naturally to them, they say, okay, there's a path there. I'll just push through and go there. But if it doesn't come naturally, you have to learn to go around. And I didn't learn that until adulthood. But for them, being a poor high school student, I tried, it just didn't always work. Uh, Being a poor high school student is what set me up to be able to show them how I do things a bit differently and how I dealt with, especially after high school, being so bad at a lot of these courses. And so where I would have said initially that uh, I'm probably not qualified to be a real good teacher, but I got the right spirit, so I'll give it a shot. What that turned out to mean is that this calling into education was simply because the path had already been set out. A lot of the stuff that I learned to do has been through this, uh, I'm not sure, and turns out that something way in the past had already given me what I needed to be able to deal with it. All I really had to do was, in faith, say yes. What did David have to do? In faith, say yes. What did Joshua have to do? In faith, say yes. What is God calling you to do? How prepared do you feel? And do you feel like you're at the point where you can confidently say, in faith, yeah, I can potentially do that. So what this means for us 
is that if shepherd David was prepared through his shepherding to fight Goliath and Joshua and his, some of the interesting spy work that he did for Moses and some of that was getting prepared to be a good leader for the Israelites and me being really close to a high school failure set me, set me up to be a really good high school teacher. What is the path that you've already walked that's preparing you for the potential miracles that has to happen? Is the miracle gonna have to happen when you get there or has it happened already and it's just waiting for you to say yes and give that a shot? So again, regardless of what we think about Goliath, because all of this is just conjecture, right? Uh, regardless of what we think about it, I think the question still stands, and it might be worth asking in a lot of other places in the Bible too, where exactly did that miracle happen and what does that mean for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today, and I thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here like this, and I pray that you give us a little confidence in the path that you've laid out for us, or paths, perhaps, and whatever that looks like. I pray that as we go forward, that you keep us safe. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone.